It's always tough preaching after daylight saving time begins. I saw a number of you coming in this morning. You're telling me, I'm tired, feeling tired. Saw a number of people this morning's service. I'm, they were tired. And so what I've decided, at certain points during the message, if I see people nodding off, you may just hear me throw in what seem, if you're paying attention, they seem like random words. Free giveaway, new movie, uh, pizza. But those are for the people who are kind of nodding up there. Pizza, what, what's that all about? Uh, free giveaway, uh, how do I get in on that? So I'll just be trying to just draw people back in as we uh, go through this morning. And if you'd uh, bear with me, we'll, we'll all try and get through this. Uh, a number of years ago, maybe some of you uh, saw a movie by Tom Hanks called Castaway. Uh, he was a FedEx employee and uh, traveling over the South Pacific, the plane goes down and he is the sole survivor. Uh, he is initially in a life raft, uh, makes his way to shore, and he's the, the sole survivor on the proverbial deserted island. It, just making it to shore feels like a feat, and yet uh, very quickly you realize he could very well soon die on that shore if he doesn't get uh, some way of, of accessing liquid. He is incredibly thirsty, and, and we're beginning to feel his thirst as he goes uh, in search of something that will quench uh, his thirst. Uh, at one point, the coconuts uh, that he discovers seem like they could be his salvation. He gets a coconut, and he's now going to get it open. So he begins throwing that coconut against a, uh, a big, a huge boulder and just uh, throwing it. And he does that again and again, and it does seemingly nothing. Then he decides, okay, that's not going to work. He puts the coconut down, gets a large rock, and just starts wailing at, at, at the coconut, but can't get it open. He's tried a number of things, and we're beginning to feel more and more thirsty because, of course, this is making him more tired, more dehydrated as time goes on. He finally gets a very sharp rock, which he uses like a knife to cut the uh, husk of this uh, coconut off. And then he's got the inner core of the coconut, which he now lifts above his head and now brings down on that rock and is able to crack open only to find all of the coconut milk fall onto the sand and spill out onto the ground, and he gets one or two little drops of coconut milk from what seemed like days was probably hours of his struggle and pain. And we feel that pain. We feel his frustration, and we enter into it. And, and so the, the movie Castaway was probably intended to bring hope to people, to, to show the challenges that people can find themselves in in very difficult, trying circumstances. And it addresses some of the physical challenges, some of the emotional challenges. But importantly, it doesn't deal with any of the spiritual dimension. It, it doesn't show that God can be a help in the most difficult times and circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so the takeaway could be, even if you were feeling encouraged, the, the message that you could take away is, with hard work and human ingenuity, you can conquer all adversity. But 
many of you have come to learn that hard work and human ingenuity have their limits. Uh, we can do everything that we can do. We can bring all of our strength to some of the problems of life, and we find ourselves unable to, uh, to get through and to move on and to press on. And so we're left somewhat encouraged and somewhat dissatisfied. Today's passage looks at a biblical castaway. It looks at someone who has faced some of the biggest challenges and in fact has hit the lowest point in his life in terms of his circumstances. It's hard to imagine how anything worse could happen to a person. And yet in the midst of that, he lays hold of God. And in so doing, he shows us a path forward to seek God in the midst of our pain. How to lay hold of God's help when we feel like the castaway. When we are the person hanging on by a thread. What is it that we can do and how can we look to him and lay hold of God in the midst of our pain and difficulty? And the story of this biblical castaway is told in Psalm 63, and so I'd encourage you to turn there with me now, if you would. Uh, in, your, in the Pew Bible, in the rack in front of you, it's on page 449. And if you just keep that open in front of you as uh, we not only read through it, but as I walk through it in the message this morning, then you'll have a, uh, a point of reference for uh, all that we say. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have seen my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of God. Now the title tells us that this was a... A Psalm of David is a, a psalm that uh, he wrote in the wilderness. But immediately we're asking, well, what, what's a king? What is a great king of Israel doing in the wilderness? He's supposed to be in the palace. He's supposed to be in a place of comfort. Why is he out in the desert wilderness? Uh, we look to the passage and we, we get some details that give us a sense of uh, where this is, is coming from. Uh, we have a have an idea, and we understand that this is probably the lowest point in David's life. Starting with the adultery with Bathsheba, he has made a shipwreck of his family. There has been great tragedy in his home, and at this particular point in his life, 
one of his sons, a son named Absalom, has staged a coup, has brought a rebellion in the land. If you know the word Absalom, you probably think of him as that guy with great hair, right? Uh, Absalom is the one who's got like this Fabio good looks. He, he's, he's known for his, his uh, long hair, and he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. But with that, he, and with the tension that had been in David's family, uh, Absalom had become resentful, and he wanted to take over and take what, what he believed should be his. And so what he did, he, he stole the hearts of the people. He formed himself an army, marched into Jerusalem, and David and his closest advisors fled. They're on the run now. That's why they're in the wilderness. And uh, as Absalom has come in, he's taken over the palace, he's taken over uh, the capital city, and while David is on the run, then he takes David's concubines up onto the palace, sleeps with them to show that he is now victor. He is superior over his father. He has the right to rule. David, at this point in his life, has lost his throne. He's lost his palace. He's lost his family. He's lost his position, his popularity. Everything has been taken from him, and now Absalom is uh, poised to attack, uh, poised to come after him, hunt him down, and finally end his life. What would you do? What, what do you do in a situation like that? And many of you would say, I know what the right answer to this question is, I would pray. But how do you pray? What on, what on earth would you say in circumstances that seemed so hopeless? Well, David gives us uh, his prayer, but it, it is, it's unusual and it's strange in, in, in being so different than the way that we typically pray when we find ourselves in those kinds of circumstances. He starts unusually by identifying his thirst. Like most people who hit a wall of adversity, he feels some deep ache inside. He knows that it's not just outside that has causing him pain. He's feeling that on the inside. But unlike most people, he pauses to recognize, what is that ache? What is that thirst? What's going on in my heart that I am completely undone by my circumstances? And he identifies that thirst and in so doing recognizes what the path of help is. In verse 1, when David prays, Oh God, we feel like we know what's going to come out of his mouth next. We, we, we've found ourselves in that situation before. And so when he says, Oh God, we're expecting the next thing that's going to come after that is, Oh God, I need my family back together. Oh God, I, I want my throne. I, oh God, I want my position and my popularity. And I, I, I want you to fix this. And Oh God, how could you let this happen? Oh God, what is happening and, and, and what will become of me? You can imagine all of those things that would come to your mind and come to my mind. And yet, all of those things would just be, just be grasping at the thirst, 
David pauses long enough to identify the thirst. And as he pauses to identify that thirst, he recognizes this is a God-sized thirst. That it is not some, it's something so big that it can't be fixed just by fixing one or more of the little circumstances in his life. Instead, he prays, Oh God, you are my God. When he prays that, it's not an abstract statement of religious belief. He's not reciting a creed. He's not just saying, God, you're my God, got that over with. It's not just religious language here. I pictured David praying, oh God, you're my God, with, with, with sweat pouring down him and with, with grit and determination as he says it. He's also not saying these words stoically, like, oh God, you're my God, so I'm just going to have to keep a stiff, up, stiff upper lip. We know that because he actually takes pains to tell God how desperate he is. He, he compares the, 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 the surroundings to how he, he is feeling on the inside. He says, my soul thirsts, my my flesh faints. You, you can feel him worn out, not only physically, but on the inside. He's feeling the pain of his circumstances. And as he looks around at the desert wilderness, as he feels how dry it is, how thirsty he feels, he says, that's how I feel on the inside. That's what my heart is like. He says, it's like a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you take a tour of Israel, one of the things that they remind you of and warn you of is dehydration. It's a, a very real problem. And, and, and that's why you see the tourists walking around with their bottles of water. They, they don't want to get dehydrated. And, and David finds himself in that desert wilderness, worn out, being hunted down in circumstances that have him completely at wit's end. And he seeks God in the midst of that, and he says, I'm all out. I've got nothing left. I am thirsting. I am fainting. I need, uh, need this thirst to be quenched. But he knows what we often forget. He knows that that thirst doesn't just get felt, and it doesn't just get expressed to God. It, it has to be identified we have to be able to, to understand and decide what it is that we will put our hope in to satisfy that thirst. David rejects the half measures he's tempted to turn to, and he names his thirst. You can see it in verse 1. My, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Earnestly, I seek you. He, he tells God, this is a God-sized thirst and I can only have that thirst quenched by you. Not just by fixing a few things in my life. I need you in my life. I need you. You are the one who will quench this thirst that I have. He repeats it three times to convince God. To convince God that he's real. To convince God that, that this is who he is trusting in, I think he also repeats himself three times to convince himself. Because if you found yourself in that situation where there just doesn't seem to be any help, it just seems to be hopeless, you will find yourself being tempted to turn in 
a bunch of other directions, right? David is at this point tempted to pray and, and to seek as a solution to his thirst a better military strategy. He, he, he's tempted to think that just getting the right diplomatic tactics in place, that will be his answer. He's tempted to think, if only I could have family harmony, then my life would be full and complete. Maybe he's tempted to turn to other things. Maybe he's tended, tempted to turn to wine, turn to another affair, turn to sin with the understanding that maybe that would not fix it, but just make it feel better for a while. And as he feels that all of those competing uh, temptations for his, the solution to this thirst, he tells God and he tells his own heart, it is not in those things what I am thirsting for, God, is you. You are the one that I seek. He's diagnosed his thirst and he declares, what I most need is you. And so come. Trials will have a way of doing that. They test what we most value, but they test what we really hope, hope in. Because we can say some things in church about what we hope in, but it is in those trials where we are tested to see what we truly hope in. Or where we have put the eggs in which basket. What are you really thirsting for? If it's our job or health or a relationship that is on the line and that undoes us, then it may be an indication that that was really the God. That was really where we have put our hope for our thirst being quenched. And God, the real God, is just in our minds a means to an end. We can often do that, that, that we, we don't reject God or push him out of our lives, but we just hold something else in our life up as more important. And God is the means to the end. But David recognizes and calls us to recognize that God will not be a means to an end in our lives. He is the end. He is the end of, for all of our lives. And so he is the one who would have us seek him as the one who can quench our thirst. So when you're holding on by a thread, you need to identify your thirst. What are you going to put your hope in? What have you chosen as the one to whom all, all of your uh, commitment is, is due? But David doesn't just identify his thirst. He also chooses his memories. If you have found yourself in a situation where you are at wit's end and the circumstances seem beyond you, you know that all kinds of thoughts come flooding into your mind. David almost certainly experienced that as well, but he knew that he could choose which thoughts he was going to focus on. He could choose his memories, what he was going to reflect on in the midst of the battle. You can choose your memories, and, and, and we are invited to do so. David's going to give us a long list of the kinds of things that he remembers in verses 2 to 8, but before we go there, it's probably helpful to to stop and think of the things that he could have been tempted to remember. You know, if you were in a, a, a trial, if you are in a, a, a wit's end kind of castaway situation, there are all kinds of things that you remember. Maybe you remember the things that I should have said. Maybe you remember the things that you did say. The things that other people said. The, the things that you wish other people hadn't have said. The things that people said that hurt you. 
things you wish you would have done, the things that you wish other people hadn't have done. Those thoughts come flooding into your mind, and it's easy for those thoughts to settle in, take over, and become the thing that pulls you down even further in the midst of that challenge or difficulty, and you all the while are telling yourself, I think I'm praying, because you're telling those things to God. And David encourages us to do something different, to choose our memories, to choose what we will think on. In verse 2, he chooses to remember what he's learned about God in the temple. He says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. As you entered the temple court, everything about the structure, everything about the decorations and the architecture was designed to point you and to impress you with the glory of God. Massive pillars. Uh, imagery borrowed from the Garden of Eden. Cherubs and, 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 and these pictures of God's abundance. And as David reflects on that, he, he's, he's not there. He's, he's out in the wilderness. He's on the run, but he has spent enough time in the presence of God, in the, palace, in, in, in the uh, temple of God, that he sends his mind back there. He remembers how God has revealed himself to him there. A and he is filled with a sense of God's power and glory. But it, it's not just the, the, the physical surroundings. He is heard the word of God proclaimed there. He is, sang, he is joined in the singing of the songs of the people of God and heard God's power and glory on display in that. He has seen countless sacrifices and seen people coming before God, confessing their sins, and that person's forgiven, and that's, that person's forgiven. And, and he reflects on all of that in verse 3 when he says, your steadfast love is better than life. Steadfast love is a technical word. You see it translated in different ways because it, it's, it's bigger than any one word in our English language. But it's God's do-what-it-takes love, commitment love. It's his I-won't-let-you-go love, his loyal uh, covenant love that he's shown to his people. And as David sees everything in his life slipping away, as he sees all that he has already lost and all that he is liable to lose physically in this world, he does the math and he says, your love is greater than that. It's better than that. It's more precious than that. I still have your love and so I still have the greatest thing that anyone could ever possess in this life. He chooses to reflect on that. He also shows us that we savor the memories that God would give us by expressing them, by communicating them. He's not just stoically thinking about God now. Watch what he says in verse 3. My lips will praise you. In verse 4, in your name I will lift up my hands. In verse 5 he says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And you have this this repetition of not, not just quietly thinking about God. It, it's, not, it's not stoic repetition of phrases that he's learned. There's celebration. He's reflecting on God's goodness and he's going to let it come out. He's going to sing it. He's going to shout it. He might start dancing, but he will 
express the, the wonder that he feels in God. And he does that because we, we savor special memories by communicating them, by opening up our mouth and, and, and expressing in visible and tangible ways the wonder that we feel. In verse 6, now David's in bed. He can't sleep. And if you've been a castaway, if you have found yourself in a time and point in your life where you're hanging on by a thread, you know that your bed is sometimes not your friend, right? You're there because you look at your watch and you say, well, this is a, place, this is a time when normal people are sleeping. Only he's lying on his bed and he's not sleeping. He's awake. And when you're awake in those situations, you know that you're often awakened by stress and worry and fear and concern and all of the thoughts come flooding into your mind. And David knows, though, that although he can't control what what woke him up, he can control what he chooses to think on now that he's awake. And so as he lays on his bed, he says, I remember you upon my bed. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. He chooses his memories, chooses what he will think on. And and when he talks about the watches of the night, it's it's a reminder. He's not just spending a few minutes of uh, before he wanders back off to sleep again. Hours have passed. He he also talks about the watches of the night because it's a reminder that the, the reason that you kept watches of the night was that you needed guards. And he needs a guard right now because Absalom could attack, attack at any moment. His life is threatened. And so when he wakes up, he remembers, oh yeah, there's, there's guards posted around me right now. The, the enemy army could arrive at any moment. But even in that situation, through the watches of the night, even when hours have passed, even when at any moment my life could be taken, I think on you. I choose to reflect on how you've revealed, him, revealed yourself to me, God. Do you know what happens when David chooses to do that? When he chooses to choose his memories, to choose what he will think on, and to do so defiantly, he, he tells us what, what happens. The thirst he told us about in verse 1, that's quenched. The hunger that he felt is filled. In verse 5, he describes it like this. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And you're like, David, that's impossible. There's no way that you would have had time to cook before you headed out of the palace. There's no way that you could have packed a buffet to, to be feasting on. Probably David hasn't eaten all day. Probably he is hungering at the moment he writes these words, but as he chooses in the midst of his greatest trial to look back and to reflect on God, he said, it's like I've had a great meal. It feels like I've just gone to a buffet and filled up, and you're the one who satisfies me. You're the one who fills me up. And in so doing, he invites us to... Look to God in our trials, not as a means to an end, not as one who helps us to get somewhere else, but to trust in him as the end in itself. To trust in him as the one who alone can quench our thirst. 
I, I don't know about you, I've read these kinds of passages for enough years now that when I am awakened in the middle of the night, as we all are from time to time, and it could be from a hundred different things, when I am finding myself awake in the middle of the night, I just take that as God's assignment he wants me to think on. I don't know how long it's going to be. It could be a short time. It could be a long time. Uh, but that is God's time. He wants me to choose my thoughts in the midst of that uh, in, in the midst of that, when I'm lying on my bed, I then begin to reflect on how has God revealed himself to me in Scripture? How has he revealed himself to me in, in my own life? What has he shown me? Reflect on his goodness, his power, his love. Choose the thoughts that I will have. And if you've done that, you know what a struggle that is. You know that you need to fight to lay hold of those thoughts, to fight to choose them because the other, the other thoughts, the ones that you don't choose, they will compete. They will keep flooding in. And yet God invites us to a place where our souls can be filled and satisfied and filled with strength in his presence. The last thing we learn from David is about declaring your trust. Because I often feel, at least in my life, that a lot of what I call prayer is really more of an expression of my unbelief than it is of my trust. That even in, in expressing my prayers, I can be showing God and showing myself that there's very little believing or trusting going on. David shows us and encourages us, calls us to declare our trust. Can I tell you what I would have prayed if I was in David's shoes? If I found myself in this trial and at, at wit's end, I think I would have prayed, God, I don't know what's going what's to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I, I don't know what Absalom is going to do. I, I don't know when the army will attack. I don't know how much time I've got left. I, I don't know if you can save me. I don't know if, if it's going to get better. I don't know if this is the end. I don't know what I'm going to do if this is the end. I don't know how I can take it if everything is stripped away and it's not coming back. And although I would have called all of that prayer, it would have really been an expression of my unbelief. It would have just been a meditation on things that I can't know and choose to worry about before the God that I called my Savior. Now, some of you are more spiritual than I am. And you would say, Paul, I wouldn't have done that. You're more confident. You've got more faith. And so maybe your prayer would have been, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you to run Absalom out of town, to restore my throne, to make me popular with the nation again and to send me back into Jerusalem. And when I do, people will be shouting with praise and wonder. And in fact, they'll voluntarily decide to raise taxes so that I can, I can be even more rich. You, you've got that kind of faith. But is that really faith? What kind of confidence is that? Because maybe what that is, is you just telling God what you'd like your will to be and asking him to foot the bill. 
David does something that's different than my prayer and different than that prayer. In what he chooses to do in this time of his greatest weakness, when genuinely he doesn't know so much about what's going to happen, and he doesn't presume to tell God, oh, I know how this is going to end up. What he does next is to lay hold of what God has revealed to him and to declare his trust in what he can know because God has made it known. Watch how he does this. In verses 9 and 10, he declares his trust, first of all, in what God has made clear about the end, about the, about the wicked, the future of the wicked. He knows that those who oppose God and his plan, his purposes, will be finally and terribly judged. When he talks about them being given over to the power of the sword and being a portion for jackals, he's affirming that they will meet a bloody and shameful end. And, and what he is doing here is choosing to lay hold of that, choosing to express his confidence in that. I, I, I believe you, God, when you tell me what you are going to bring about in the lives of those who reject you and your purposes, I declare my trust in that. A lot that I don't know, but I know, I know it doesn't go well for people who put their fists up against you. Then from there, he, 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 he turns to what God's made clear about the future of the righteous. When he says, but the king shall rejoice in God, he's talking about himself in the third person, not because he's strange or, or putting on airs, but at this point, he's remembering all of the promises that have been given to the anointed, the king. And he's choosing to believe them. He's choosing to lay hold of those promises. He knows the king will eventually rejoice in God. And so shall those who choose to find their hope in him, who swear by him. But, but remember all the stuff he doesn't know. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know, and he, he doesn't know, for instance, how long Absalom will su succeed. He doesn't know how much more damage he will face. He doesn't know how long the humiliation will continue. And what he doesn't know, he doesn't fill his, 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 his concerns and worries with. He chooses to lay hold of what he can and does know. He chooses to declare his trust. And in so doing, he gives us a way to pray with hope when our circumstances feel hopeless. So where does that all leave us? We probably can't stop our reflection on this psalm without recognizing that it's pointing somewhere else. Because there was another king who was betrayed by someone very close to him. We know that Jesus Christ was driven out into the wilderness. We know that he was opposed and there was a, a coup, a takeover set about by those who rejected him as king who opposed his rule in their lives. So I think if David was here this morning, he'd warn us about the judgment. The judgment that he declared about, about those who were opposing God's rule in his time. And I think what he'd say to you and to me is the judgment that awaits those who reject Jesus' kingship and rule in their lives will be far greater. Far more serious. Stakes are, are, are far higher. 
He's an eternal king. And so these are eternal consequences. I think he'd urge us to declare our trust in Jesus and declare our faith in what he has made clear about the future. Even when we're tempted to focus and preoccupy ourselves with all the things that we can't know. I think he'd tell us to choose our memories and what we reflect on. And when we choose to reflect on anything that God has revealed in his word, I think he'd tell us, and don't forget to focus in the center, at the cross, where God's do-what-it-takes commitment, loyal love to us was made clear, was made manifest, was put on display as Jesus gave himself gave his life for us as he gave himself as a sacrifice in our place to forever, once and for all, show the incredible love that he has for all of us. Tell us to put our, our minds there, to focus our hearts in that direction. And finally, I think he'd tell us that that ache that we have, that, that sense that we have that we need something more, that there is more to this life, there is meaning and there is purpose, there's something that we thirst for, we hunger for, and we're ache, we ache for. I think he would tell us, forget all of the things that we are tempted to and recognize that's a God-sized thirst that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. I think he'd urge us to come to him, to look to him and to find our satisfaction in him. Now, some of you believe all that. Some of you know all that. Many of you, most of you, I hope. But when you're hanging on a thread, it's easy to push it aside. It's easy to think, well, maybe something else will quench the thirst. It's easy to let your mind just be washed over by all of those thoughts that come rushing in. Instead of choosing to look to your God, to look to what Jesus Christ has done as our hope and our anchor and our strength. Next time you're lying on your bed, you're awake in the middle of the night and you're not quite sure why, I want to ask you to choose to think back on how God has revealed himself to you, how he has shown you his love, how he has revealed his glory and his power. Choose to remember his goodness and get your mind off of what might happen, what could happen, what should have happened, and lay hold of the things that God has said in his word will happen. Declare your trust in those. Find your rooting and your, your, your rock in those. And as we do, it's with the promise that that fullness and that satisfaction is ours in him. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do look to you. We believe that the ache that we feel is only one that can be satisfied in, in you, in your presence. Pray for those who are facing trials right now who feel like castaways. Would you show them that you're the one they really need? Would you show them that your love really is better than life? Would you fill them with hope and strength by your presence? 
Father, for the rest of us, would you help us? Help, help us to fill up with the knowledge of the glory of God. So when we find ourselves with those times with our thoughts are racing, trying to choose our memories, that we'd be able to find scriptures of help that we can turn to. For we ask you in Jesus' name.